Welcome to a Hotel Analyst podcast special. And uh, joining us on this one is Simon Allison, the Chairman and CEO of Hoftel. Uh, my name is Chris Bound, the Editor at Hotel Analyst, and uh, joined as usual by Andrew Sankster, the Editorial Director of Hotel Analyst as well. And the reason we've got Simon uh, along with us this week is, Simon, I believe you've got an event upcoming. Yes, we do. We already run and have done since 2016 uh, hotel investment conferences in the Middle East and Asia. And we're now launching our first one in Europe which is called the Atlantic Ocean Hotel Investor Summit uh, and will be on the 16th and 17th of January in Madrid. And obviously being called the Atlantic Ocean, it means we're covering really all the countries that border on the Atlantic Ocean. Being in Madrid, obviously, there's a lot of Spanish and Portuguese representation, but we also have investors and speakers from the UK, France, Atlantic Africa, the Caribbean, even Brazil and South Africa. So it's a really broad geographical mix. And the reason we do these conferences is a bit like when Hotel Analyst does its events. We're very content focused. Uh, we think, you know, that the hotel investment conference community has got used to conferences which are really about networking. They're very big. They're dominated by the big brands. Big brand CEOs can't say much in public because they can't release material non-public information. And so the content tends to be a bit bland. Everyone's out networking. People aren't really listening to much of the content beyond a session or two. Ours are really very, very different. They're built around owners. We, we promise a third of the people in the room will be owners or owner operators. We're usually getting about 40%. Uh, they're usually a bit more feisty in their comments. And uh, we, we tend to score very, very highly for, for feedback for content networking as well, because they're a bit smaller and they're, they're nearly everybody is, is a senior decision maker. Great, and I think we're going to start uh, warming up by having a, a quick canter through three topics you've picked, which you think will probably be very high on the agenda at at the event. Um, and I think the first of those is, uh, is is the impact of inflation. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I'm old enough, sadly, to remember when investors regarded, or at least yeah, real estate investors regarded, inflation as a really good thing, in that it would inflate them away from their their debt obligations. That still is seen as a good thing, Simon, isn't it? I mean, you've got Chris Setter of Hilton saying, you know, inflation is, is our friend and our owner's friend. You, you don't think that's the case? Well, it was funny because we had a, our, our private members meeting in Europe. We also, by, by, by chance, had in Madrid this summer. And it was very clear that our members who are, you know, serious institutional investors, family offices and so on, were not particularly excited about inflation. They were really quite worried about it. And we've been debating really internally what, why, what's, what's really the issue here. And I think it's twofold. Firstly, actually, I don't think a lot of people believe in long-term inflation. So they're seeing themselves having to lock in debt at, you know, by recent standards, very high rates. And if they're then doing a five-year or even a 10-year forecast that's seeing inflation drop to 2 or 3% again, those interest rates aren't justifiable. That initial cap rate doesn't work. So they're stopping doing deals in many cases, and certainly deals are getting traded back down again. So, you know, so, so that's one issue. It's almost like the, the, the lack of will to believe in long-term inflation of, say, 5 to 7% uh, is, is one issue. Another issue, I think, is that many of them have seen a very good year in terms of room, rev room rates and that's been true throughout most of the world frankly and they're now seeing that inflation for 23-24 is actually cost catching up energy costs, supply costs, labour costs, interest rates etc so they're seeing inflation more on the cost side and they kind of they bank this year's revenue gains which are obviously above inflation for many 
um, and, and are now worried about that. And I guess there is a third point, which is any investor under 50 hasn't really been working in an era of high real interest rates. Investors have been used to interest rates being zero or negative in real terms. And of course, that is a very, very recent phenomenon. Um, it, really since the, the global financial crisis and and probably isn't sustainable so I think that you know it, it's a whole mix of generational factors and and outlook factors but certainly many of our investors were saying they found this year's budget round the hardest they've ever had hmm. I, I get that I mean just going on to this point about money is once again costing money I mean this artificial world we lived in in the post GFC period um, just was never going to be sustainable and I think it, it inherently bad I think if you believe in capitalism and its ability or Schumpeter's creative destruction and all of this stuff if you believe that you, you know you've got to have losers as well as winners which I think you do have to have the problem was that in in this sort of zero the ZERP environment of zero interest rate um what, what you had are no losers and that that's you know not everyone can't be a winner that's the reality of business and reality of life i'd argue as well um but it, it, it's we've we've got to adjust back into that and i think fundamentally that is a good thing because we're going to get back to sort of more normal business and when we look at the actual rates themselves debt interest rates they're still it's still phenomenally low it's still in the sort of bottom quartile of historic rates in the sort of post-war period so i think it's still good i think you make a very interesting point on this um if there's an expectation of of inflation going and going back down to near zero again um how do you adjust and the pain that that's going to be there if you lock in long-term rates um but I mean, I, I think there are reasons for optimism around uh, around the inflationary piece, and um, something I would also put in is is the ability that you know some form of you know you don't want Argentinian style inflation, uh, Weimar Republic style inflation, obviously, but but you know having sort of very low double digit, high single digit inflation does enable you to make pricing adjustments, which is something I think that needs to happen in our sector. Um, we. Need to pay people better and part of that to fund that you've got to actually make more money and to make more money you've got to price better right so um so that adjustment can go in there if if you've got that because if you've got a you know you can um if, if you've got shift in nominal um um pricing because of inflation you can actually push that up yeah, a little bit more in real terms as well above inflation and that can you can sort of sneak that in the back door if you like well i think i think what's what's happening uh, and this is my personal view you know it's, it's it's also kind of as your comments have been kind of macroeconomic slash geopolitical slash political right um but i think you, know, you you are seeing globalization at least for now probably having hit its high point and to some extent being in retreat and that does give a lot more power to the labor force because you can't keep contracting out to Bangladesh or to India or, or, or to, to whatever is a, is a lower labor cost market. And so, yeah, and, and you know, that's one of the reasons you're seeing, for example, a wave of strikes around the UK. You know, labor has more power than it did um, before COVID. Uh, and you're seeing people who say, I don't want to go back to that job where I'm getting up at four in the morning, you know, to, to go and stand on the front desk or I've got to stay till midnight washing dishes. So the hotel sector is quite affected by, by a new outlook that people have, I think, both in terms of wanting more money and, of course, Generation Z wanting more interest in their jobs. 
And so I think that's to some extent here to stay for a bit. I think I think Labour is going to have the upper hand for quite some time. And, and you're right, Andrew. I mean, we've been in a in a political environment for quite a long time now, where democracies have been getting richer and can always offer more and can always bail everybody out. And as the democracies perhaps are not going to keep getting as rich as they were, perhaps there are going to have to be losers again. And so I suspect you are going to have a slightly crunchier economy where some people will do well and some people won't. Uh, and, and you're right, the hotel industry is going to have to pay up. But if you are frightened of paying up because you don't believe you can push the top line to go with it, that's what I think is frightening a lot of people. Plus, of course, a lot of people are doing a deal just on the initial cap rate. And obviously that's gone through the roof. So, so prices are falling. Absolutely. Um, and I think the polit political bit, moves us on to the next topic which is esg um and how how are owners thinking about that at the moment simon whenever you go to a conference ever somebody in in some session is going to be talking about esg and frankly the, the the overall main driver of that is obviously the whole carbon equation and how you get to your, your carbon neutrality in the asset and so on i mean that's you know the, the s and the g are, are some way behind that in terms of importance and obviously you've, you've got you've got climate change targets and everybody can see coming down the road at some point that there will be real regulatory hurdles uh, real benchmarks you're going to have to meet and of course nobody knows what they're going to be <coughs> which again is causing some, some degree of angst what, what really woke our members up to it uh, was jll as uh, as one of our sponsors starting to talk about it at a conference in London about a year ago and I think owners were suddenly going oh my goodness we're not talking about saving you know 10 basis points on a loan because we do a green loan we're talking about adding two three four percent to the yield on our asset when we sell it and that's going to hurt so I think owners are very attuned to it now and when we had our member summit you could see the more institutional the owner is the more concerned they are so people like Brookfield Swiss Life Invesco they're very very focused on ESG of course, the brands have been talking about, you know, being green for a very long time now. Uh, but what is interesting, and this is obviously anecdotal, but what we're hearing is that, as with so much in a management contract, if you try and actually put a liability onto the brand in the management agreement to say you will meet whatever the, the benchmarks are as the operator of the hotel, uh, apparently they're shying away from that. And of course, they want to shove the responsibility back onto the owner again, even though, of course, it's not the owner in a managed hotel. It's not the owner who's actually doing the work. Right. And in, in terms of those benchmarks, Simon, what, what, what give, give me some specifics on that. I think the problem is that there aren't yet specifics. So it's, you know, right. you undertake that you will meet whatever X is at some point in the future. And of course, it's an obligation to do something unspecified. So um, it's not that easy to draft, I'm sure. And I haven't, I haven't been in, in these negotiations. But what we're hearing from lawyers and from owners and <clears throat> even from some operators is most operators are very, very nervous about what they're going to have to commit to. Um, and it's actually, the, although the operators talk the green game, it's actually the owners and um, the institutional owners who are probably ahead of it at this point. And uh, we're going to have a very interesting session there with a, with a very uh, a very green brand, uh, Andrew Fee Ibrahim, of, who, who you all know, I'm sure, at EEA, um, and a lawyer and, uh, and an, an owner to talk about really who is pushing this. And although the brands talk the game, are they actually going to walk the walk? Yeah, I mean, one of the big problems is, is, you know, when we just mentioned specifics, there aren't as specifics. And um, one of the things I'm, you know, looking at it, and you, you simply don't have any benchmarks which are meaningful to go by. Whereas, you know, w comparing company A to company B on, on financials and profitability, there is a set 
a group of standards out there I mean it's the IFRS and you've got those standards now the IFRS are coming up with the sustainability the International Sustainability Standards Board which is going to do that but I you know I think we're a decade plus away from having something where you can look at somebody's and <clears throat> companies a environmental position and company b's environmental position and, and make meaningful comparisons because although you you know you're going to have these issb standards at you know at, at a high level at, at at the sort of unit level um you know uh, as i was attending a thing with uh, uh wolfgang neumann um the the sustainable hospitality alliance um he he's the chair of that um and as he pointed out there's there's a couple of dozen ways of measuring carbon in your hotel at the moment and it's just you know if our little sector can't actually agree on a you know at least one or two ways of measuring carbon what hope have we to do this on a on you know across many different industries i think there's a huge problem here and we're a long way from fixing it actually and my, my fear is we're going to start um getting clobbered uh, as always in this sector um we're going to be the you know the the we're going to get kicked by the politicians because we're a relatively easy target and i <clears throat> and i look at something like the what the eu is up to at the moment in terms of the european commission in particular with its taxonomy on this issue well inevitably how they're approaching it is in a very subjective manner and inevitably those with the loudest voices german manufacturers spring to mind are going to get their way and it's our sector that's going to be uh, you know uh, on the end of the boot here um because we don't have the lobbying power um in brussels and you know it, it's a particularly for northern europeans where there's a deficit they've got a tourism deficit so you know shrinking the tourism industry from their perspective is probably a net good thing and i think that you know we've got some very big challenges ahead as an industry i think to fight back against some of the stuff that's heading our way um would, would you agree with that there's certainly a risk of that. I mean, we're not we're not great at lobbying because we are disparate. I mean, you know, I set up Hoftel because there's about three trillion dollars worth of hotel real estate in the world, and that has less power than you know two OTAs. So it is a problem of dissipation, and, and, and we're not very good at political lobbying anywhere in the world, really. Uh, and of course, we're an easy target because anyone who flies, um, you know, is, is is using their carbon, and so regardless of anything you do in the hotel, you're going to be a target. In any in any hotel that attracts long long haul visitors, so that's always going to be an issue. <clears throat> and then, of course, it is an operating business, so therefore there are lots and lots of, as you say, lots of things you're going to try and measure. I mean, hotel versus hotel benchmarking. I mean, there is one there's one company uh, out in in Asia that's doing that now and doing it, I think, quite professionally. So you know, there's two different sorts of benchmarking. There's how do I compare to my competitors? And I think even if standards are not quite set. If you can show that you are actually better in measures A, B, and C against your competitors, uh, you, you'll, you'll get benefit from that when you sell an asset. So, so that's one side of it. And then, as you say, I mean, exactly, you know, which standards you're going to have to meet. And if you're an American brand operating in Europe, do you have to meet the American ones or the European ones, uh, and so on? It's it's going to be a mess for quite a while, I think. Hmm. Do you think, I mean, moving us on to our third topic about brand mergers, I mean, one of the things, you know, in my 30 years writing about the sector, um, you know, lots of uh, 
bigger companies have turned up and said we're going to sweep across Europe and actually consolidate um, and that's never of course happened in a meaningful way and we're still in a position where you know the biggest brand in in Europe is Ibis and that's got something like two percent of the room stock um, we're such a fragmented industry do you think we're actually turning a corner a little bit on that and um, are we beginning to see some consolidation here um, I mean and uh, as an owner's um, group you're going to see the negatives of having consolidation but I'd argue there are actually benefits to the industry overall in having a few bigger players um, out there I mean look it's a two-edged sword there are there are obviously pros and cons you know the loyalty programs for example are generally seen as a pro and I think they generally are um, purchasing power and procurement is, is clearly a benefit of being bigger uh, and, and that's that's also true so yeah, and, and the reason why the biggest brands tend to have the best loyalty programs, the best room delivery and so on is because they're the biggest. So you know, that, that's clearly the case. There are disadvantages too, less personal attention uh, as an owner, uh, overlapping brands. Um, frankly, the creation of new brands every 10 minutes, most of which the consumer has really no idea what they mean. So, so there are pros and cons. <clears throat> I mean, you talk about IBIS, yes. I mean, from a customer perspective, you're right. It's very fragmented. From an owner perspective, if you want institutional funding, uh, you don't have that many choices of a, of a brand to go to unless you have an asset that can stand on its own. Uh, and I mean, our members debate long and hard, you know, does anyone break the line between the big guys, the Marriott's, the Hilton's, and then maybe the Eccles and the Intercom's going down through the Radisson's and the Wyndham's to the much smaller chains where you know, their contracts are generally friendly but they still deliver? And the answer seems to be no, not really. You know, the big guys are, are tough to deal with, uh, inflexible, and you know, you, you're, you're, you, you know, however well you negotiate, you are to some extent in their hands for the length of the contract. Um, and that's why a lot of people are moving to franchising, where you still get that benefit. Uh, and at the smaller end, yes, you know, there are some lovely chains to deal with where you can talk to the CEO wherever you want, whenever you want to, but you may ne never get them on the phone. Uh, or you get them, but they can't, you know, they're not delivering. So it isn't easy uh, I think you know that it's interesting what you say because you're talking from a consumer perspective when you say Ibis has 2% of the market but be, whenever the big brand companies create a new brand it fragments it still further so the customer is probably getting more and more confused but of course from the owner's perspective it's not good when they create new brands because then they can breach their area of exclusivity with a new brand which they're doing all the time so, I mean, I, I, I went to Riyadh for the first time in a long time this year, and I was staying in one hotel uh, with one of the brands of one of the big groups, and literally across the road was another one. And the owner told me, oh yeah, when we did the radius restriction, we didn't think the city would develop in that way, so we didn't cover it. And you're like, well, that's pretty shameless. You know, okay, legally you can do it, but would you do that to your partner? And the answer is apparently yes, you would. So sometimes they're a bit naughty. Um, but again, no question, if you're with one of the big big six brands, they're clearly delivering more room nights. Yeah, I mean, on, on that area of exclusivity piece, do you think it's time there's a sort of rethink over that? <clears throat> because the evidence i've seen where you have a concentration of of properties controlled by a, um, a single brand or a single brand company you tend to get out performance because they're able to negotiate stronger and harder with incoming um, groups and that kind of thing um, isn't it time maybe owners thought beyond that and started thinking actually you know i want to be part of a of a bigger group because that 
that that agglomeration actually drives drives a return that's what you see in many other industries shouldn't we be thinking about that in that way in this industry no because it doesn't andrew to be honest um you know it's it is true if you're a resort hotel dealing with still with wholesalers or dmcs and you have eight hotels in sri lanka or something you know you can drive a much better bargain than if you have one so in those cases it's true it may be true in mice business because you you know you can you can cross fertilize and if hotel a can't take it you give it to hotel b uh, but for the fit traveler you know you're 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 using your system over a, a wider and wider base and i mean I've, I've seen one city in asia which had over 100 hotels from one of the brands and i got to see because we were looking at taking them over a couple of those p and they were awful because that brand power simply wasn't enough to deliver in all those rooms. So, you know, f f it, it depends It depends really what kind of hotel you are. But no, I mean, I think, you know, all businesses that have a franchise model, whether it's a 7-Eleven or a McDonald's, that they, they will give you some sort of area of protection. It may not be great, but you get something. And the fact that you can simply have, you know, Bloggins brand and then Bloggins Suites and, you know, Bloggins Grand and they all breach it. I think that's a nonsense. I think the brands are being really quite disingenuous with that. Interesting. Well, Simon, this has been a great chat, and I think is gives a fair reflection on the kind of quality of debate you get at your events. Um, you get into the weeds, into the detail, which, uh, as you say, you just simply don't see at most other um, um, investment conferences um, in our sector. So uh, I wish you every success, and of course, um, I'll I'll be along as uh, one of your speakers um, in in January for that. But uh, before you go, um, we on this podcast we normally have. Uh, a five star and no star um so just just tell us the um the url of the conference um and then give us your five star and your no star okay so it's www.aohis.co not .com, .co, um and you can see everything on there the speakers the registration and so on um five stars i would say brands that are fully transparent in terms of their recharges and programs because I think that's one of owners' biggest bugbears, is not knowing what it is they're going to be charged for. So full marks to any brands that are really transparent on that. Um, I have to say, having run conferences now for, for a few years, I would say that one of the weakest parts of the industry is that the sales and, and, and banquet, the, the sales departments of events and banqueting uh, departments, they, they still have a very old-fashioned attitude of how much can I screw the customer out of. Um, and, you know, you don't have trip advisors for that. And I think in many areas where it's not just room revenue, but it's other things, hotels still have the wrong attitude towards their customers. And I think they'd do much better if they didn't and thought about lifetime customer value rather than just how much can I make out of this Bring one event. We'll say thank you very much, Simon. And Okay. All right, pleasure. Good to chat to you. Okay, bye for now. Cheers. Bye.